Taste the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. Sanctification, a holy life. Must a man walk uprightly before God on this earth in order to be saved in the end, to be saved from the coming wrath of God? This is John Clark. I'm glad you're with us, and I'm welcoming you as we continue on the Pioneer Broadcast to study the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Will God require you to have lived a holy life in order to be admitted into his heavenly kingdom? You better believe it. We'll be back in a moment to examine more of the Bible's answers to the question, What must I do to be saved? Stay with us, won't you? Every sinful stain, He's Jesus forever the same. He's the fragrance of heaven, the manna. The truth of God is so simple, so clear, and so easily understood. You don't need a graduate degree in order to understand Jesus. Nor do you need a graduate degree to understand anyone whom Jesus sends to you with his word. The truth is so simple, according to the prophet Isaiah, that even a fool could understand it. And the way is so easily lived that even a fool does not need to make a mistake. Jesus didn't quote from different languages. Jesus pointed to the birds of the air, the grass of the fields, the sea, the farmer planting his field, a newborn baby crying out. If someone is speaking to you the word of God, it is simple, it is straightforward, and it does not impress you with erudition. It impresses you with its simplicity. The gospel is simple. Repent, receive the Spirit of God, and then obey it. Follow after its commands, and you will be saved in the end. It is simple. Get right with God, stay right with God, and you'll be all right with God. The confusion comes when we, in our flesh, are attracted to and take into our hearts wrong ideas about our Heavenly Father. And when someone takes in a wrong idea about God and becomes dedicated to that wrong idea and teaches it to others, that's what the Bible calls false doctrine. A false doctrine is just a wrong idea about God. And when God reveals truth to someone and that someone is so excited about it that he teaches it to others, that's called true doctrine. And that is good, a wonderful thing and not often enough heard. In the main, wrong ideas about God have, have historically been directed toward one goal, and that is somehow to make it appear that sinfulness is acceptable with God. Most of those who have wrong ideas about God will claim in one way or another that something less than a holy lifestyle, something less than a sanctified lifestyle, is acceptable in the kingdom of God. It's as if the flesh, the carnal nature of man, is obsessed with finding some way, 
some way to excuse sin rather than simply repenting of it, turning from it, and having the blood of Jesus take that sinful nature out of our hearts. Instead of the simplicity of the gospel, carnal men strive with their intricate doctrines and ceremonies, in essence, to deny that God requires obedience and a sanctified life. And that, in spite of everything that the scriptures have to say, is what the flesh does. Take, for example, as far as what the scriptures say, the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say? And you could read, you could read the whole thing and get this message from it, but let me just take one sentence that he said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does that simple statement mean? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is Jesus implying there? First of all, he means just what he says. If you're pure in heart, you will see God. But let's look at it the other way. It implies that if you are not pure in heart, you will not be blessed to see God. That is so obviously what it means that the flesh wants to deny it. The impure will never see God. Sin can never enter there. Let's look at another example in the scriptures so far as sanctification is concerned because we're focusing in on that element of the answer to our question. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, the Apostle Paul wrote to his precious brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Did you hear that? God from the beginning has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now in saying that God has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, it's obvious that sanctification of the Holy Ghost, sanctification of the Spirit of God, must come first. If I tell you, in order to get to the kitchen, you must come through the dining room, I'm telling you, you must go through the dining room first, and then you'll be able to get to the kitchen. Or if I tell you, in order to get to town A, you must go through town B, it's obvious I'm saying that town B must be gone through first, and then you can get to town A. You see? Now, some of those people who come through the dining area will not get to the kitchen because they'll change their mind and go into another room. Some of the people who go through town B will not get to town A because they'll turn off on a different path which will take them to a different place. And some of those who have believed the gospel and been sanctified by the Spirit will not attain to salvation because they take a different road. They take into their heart a wrong idea about God and that wrong idea affects how they live and they go a different way. In Hebrews, at the end of chapter 10, it says that we are not among those who draw back into perdition, but to those who believe to the saving of the soul. We make it to the kitchen. We make it to town A. We make it to salvation if we continue in the faith. As Paul told Timothy, continue in the doctrine. Continue in those right things about God that I gave you. And in so doing, you'll save yourself and them that hear you. We cannot say it is not true that we, quote, get saved and then later are sanctified by the Spirit. 
Jesus didn't teach that. Paul didn't teach that. Paul said we are chosen to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, so the sanctification must come first. We must go through the sanctification and through the belief of the truth in order to reach the salvation of God. The believing and the sanctification give us the hope of reaching our goal. Salvation is not a synonym of, of, for conversion. Salvation means to escape the coming wrath of God. Paul looked forward to his salvation. You remember what he said in Romans 13:11? For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. So Paul was converted, then he had hope of salvation. Peter said in uh, Acts 15, we believe. Now he was talking about himself. He was already born again living a sanctified life, already believing the truth. And he said, we believe that we shall be saved. There's no place in your New Testament where Paul or Peter or James or John or Jesus called for an altar call, whatever that is, and told people to come get saved. They told people to go make things right with the ones they had stolen from, to burn up their witchcraft material. That's real repentance. And if you really repent, you're going to receive the sanctification of the Holy Ghost the baptism of the Spirit, then you can go on to salvation in the end. Salvation really is glorification with Christ when we receive our new bodies. So we believe the truth, we're sanctified by the Spirit, then we have hope of eternal life or salvation. Jeremiah said, It is good for a man both to hope and quietly wait for the salvation of our Lord. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he told his disciples, in your patience, possess ye your souls. We have need of faith and patience, the writer of Hebrews said, so that we can obtain the promises of the Lord. Salvation is best understood as our hope. Paul said, put on your head as a helmet the hope of salvation. And he said, Christ in you is the hope of salvation, the hope of glory. So this sanctification and believing of the truth are part of a lifestyle. This element of the, uh, the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is a part of a lifestyle required by God. A lifestyle of sanctification. And now we need to ask the question, well, how then am I sanctified so that I can reach salvation or be prepared to receive it when Jesus comes back? And the answer is very simple. And we can read one scripture from Romans 15 and find it. Romans 15, 16 says, Paul said his, his mission in Christ was to be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up, and that means the worship, the worship of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. If God sanctifies you, he sanctifies you through the Holy Ghost. If anyone ever is to be sanctified or made holy, we must be sanctified and we will be sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God. The whole world is worshiping God. The Gentiles were worshiping God in Romans, Romans 15 when Paul was writing this. And his goal was to make their worship acceptable because no matter how much worship... The world gives God, it's all unacceptable unless it's cleansed, unless it's purified or sanctified by the Spirit of God. We must worship God in order to be saved in the end. That's, that's clear. Your own heart tells you that. 
But that worship of God must be acceptable with God. And God is not like Christianity. He does not have the spirit of harlotry to take in anything that comes. He does not accept any worship that is offered him unless he has made it clean by sanctifying it with the Holy Ghost. God is holy. And we are to be holy if we are to be acceptable with him. Did you know that in the book of Psalms it says that God is so holy that he condescends to behold the things in heaven? It is beneath God to even behold the angels. In the book of Job we're told God charges his angels with foolishness. He doesn't even trust angels. Our worship, our way, in our time, in our own power and wisdom is filthy in the sight of God. We must be sanctified so that we can worship in spirit and in truth, which God requires. They that worship God, Jesus said, must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. If Jesus said we must worship in spirit and in truth, then all other forms of worship are unacceptable. You see, regardless of how talented musicians may be in their singing of hymns or playing of music, regardless of how well rehearsed they are, regardless of how well written the songs, it's unacceptable if those who are worshiping aren't sanctified by the Spirit and being mo moved by the Spirit to offer up that singing to God. Regardless of how educated the minister is, regardless of how eloquent, regardless of how well built and expensive the building, regardless of how many people are involved, our worship is unacceptable with God without being sanctified by God. And there is no sanctification without the baptism, the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. We must live in a sanctified and worship in a sanctified manner. Numbers mean nothing to God. Solomon knew this. He said, though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished. If everyone on this planet votes on a doctrine and it's wrong, it's still wrong. If everyone on the planet votes to worship in a certain way and goes ahead and does it without being sanctified, it's still unclean before God. Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for his disciples. He, he prayed that God would sanctify us through his truth. Sanctify them through their truth, he prayed in John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their, sake, their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. And they that are sanctified and he that sanctifies are all of one. Hebrews says you are not, we cannot be one unless you and I are sanctified. We cannot be one with the Father unless you and I are sanctified because He is sanctified and His unity, is, His harmony is in the sanctification. We must believe the truth and be sanctified by the truth, keeping the truth after we've been sanctified. There's more truth to have from God. And that 
continued walk in the truth continues to purify us from old habits and old ways. Peter said, you purified your hearts through obedience to the truth. And what is truth? Pilate asked that of Jesus, you know. Truth is whatever the Spirit is saying to you right now. The only true doctrine is whatever the Spirit of God is saying to you right now. The only true minister is the minister who is saying what the Spirit is saying to you right now. A true minister is somewhat like a cheerleader for God. All he is saying is amen to what the Spirit is already saying. He whom God sends speaks the words of God. Jesus called it the Spirit of truth. And a man who is under the Spirit of truth is speaking the truth that the Spirit is saying to his people wherever they may be. To walk in the Spirit means to walk in the truth. Now you can be born again, as I said before, and, and not make it to salvation because you turn off on the wrong road or you change your mind and go back. You can lose your reward. But Solomon said this, He that walketh uprightly shall be saved. And David said, God saves the upright in heart. And he also said later, God saves the meek of the earth. But what does this imply? It's so simple. Just as with the example from the Sermon on the Mount, we can say that if God saves the, ma the man who walks uprightly, then God will not save the man who does not walk uprightly. We can say with David that God saves the upright in heart. What will happen then to the one who's not upright in heart? If God saves the meek of the earth, what will happen to the... The, to those who are not meek. In Psalm 149.4, we know what will happen to the meek because it says God will beautify the meek with salvation. Well then, if you're not meek, if you're not humble before God, then God will not beautify uh, you with salvation, but he will, he will turn you over to damnation, and that's not beautiful at all. Salvation, my friends, again, is glorification. When God beautifies the meek with salvation, he's not talking about conversion. He's talking about glorifying those who are already converted and who remained humble in his sight and meek. If God is going to save those who are meek, then those who are going to be saved must be meek first. If God's going to save the sanctified people, you must be sanctified first. John said it, Little children, don't be deceived. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Isn't that simple? Not the one who claims it, not the one who thinks so, but the one who is doing righteousness is righteous. Listen, my friend, in your situation right now, there is a righteous thing for you to do and an unrighteous thing for you to do. Which will you do? Men have tried so hard to get around the simple truth that God requires holiness. There's no way to get around the reality that without holiness, no man shall see God. Jesus said, not all those who say unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, and God will save the righteous. Paul said, not the hearers of the word will be justified before God, but the doers of the word. The meek and upright do righteousness. In 1 Peter we read that, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? The righteous will scarcely be saved, so you must be righteous. And even then, Peter said, you scarcely be saved. And that brings up the new issue that we'll deal with next time. What about works? What about works? 
We'll answer that question next time as part of the answer to the most important question that anyone can ask. What must I do to be saved? He's the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus. He's the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. And welcome again to the Pioneer Broadcast. I'm your host, John Clark, and we are continuing our series on the question, What Must I Do to Be Saved? This time, we'll be dealing with the issue of works. Are good works necessary in order for you to receive your promised salvation at the end of the way? In Ephesians, the second chapter, Paul wrote these famous scriptures. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But on the other hand, in Romans chapter 2, Paul said that God will give glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good. Now, Paul, if, work, if our salvation is not of works, why do we have to work in order to receive it? Or is salvation really, as Martin Luther said, by faith alone? The Apostle James said, you see that how works, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. We'll unravel these mysteries and give you the answer this time to the question, what must I do to be saved in just a few moments? Stay with us. It's the question of the ages. What must I do to be saved? He's Jesus forever the same. He's my peace when... I want to begin our... Uh, study this time with two scriptures from the Old Testament, one from David and one from his son Solomon, which bring us to our point. In Psalm 62:12, David wrote, Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. And the other scripture is right at the close of Solomon's book on Ecclesiastes. The last two verses. This is Solomon speaking after he had written 3,000 proverbs, hundreds of songs, and the conclusion of all his wisdom, all the revealed knowledge of God that he had, was summed up in these last two verses of Ecclesiastes. This is what he said. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What is the conclusion, Solomon, of all your wisdom and all your writing? What is the conclusion? And this is it. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. 
fear and obey God. The conclusion of the wisdom of the wisest man who ever lived. The Bible clearly and consistently teaches that fear of God and obedience to God leads to salvation from the coming wrath of God. There are judgments now. There is a final judgment, and there are judgments now. For example, God is seeing sinners as being on their way to eternal damnation. They are not eternally damned yet. They are not cast into the lake of fire. They may change. But his judgment right now is that sinners are sinners without hope of eternal life. Let me read you something here in Ezekiel 18. 18 verse 21. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Though right now there may, you may be in danger of eternal damnation. You can change. You can change the judgment that is on you right now by turning from wickedness to righteousness and all of your wickedness you've done will not be mentioned anymore to you. The same thing goes with the believer. There is a judgment right now on believers that they are on their way to eternal life. But that judgment may change as well. Listen to what he says uh, later on in this same chapter. But when the righteous turn away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? God says no. All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Isn't that something? If a wicked man turns to God and ceases from doing evil, God will forgive him and his wickedness will no more be mentioned. But if that man who has turned and begun to, to obey God and walk in righteousness turns from the righteousness, then he shall die and his righteousness will be forgotten. His righteousness will be mentioned no more to him and he will have no more claim on eternal life. There is a judgment now that can be changed, but there is a coming judgment that will not be changed. There is such a thing as an eternal judgment, a final judgment. God will make a final judgment on each one of us. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, I believe it is, as a tree falls, so shall it lie. As you enter into that grave, you will always be. If you enter, having lived a righteous life, you will enter into the resurrection of life. If you die having lived a, an unclean life or having turned back from righteousness, I'm afraid it may not be a good thing for you in the resurrection. Jesus said it in Revelation, uh, in the book of Revelation, talking about the condition of people at the end of time. He that is filthy, Jesus said, let him be filthy still. He that is pure, let him be pure still. At the final judgment, there will never be a change of that judgment. There is a judgment day. We're being judged all along the way. But these judgments can be changed if our conduct changes. But on that day, it's eternal. There is a judgment day in the which God 
through his son Jesus Christ will pronounce a final unchanging judgment on the soul of every man and every woman who has ever or will ever live on this earth. And in every case, when the Bible speaks of an eternal judgment, that judgment is always made based upon our deeds or works in this life. Not on your doctrine, not on your desire, not on your belief, but on your activity in this life. In Matthew 25, a very famous parable about the judgment, Jesus saved some who stood before his judgment seat on the basis of their deeds, and the others he cast into outer darkness on the basis of their deeds. Every person in that parable was judged based on their conduct in this life. And the point is, at the judgment, Jesus will judge everyone on the basis purely of how we have on the basis purely of how we have lived our lives from God's perspective so it's important you see that we find out what God's perspective of our life is the people in that parable in Matthew 25 were very surprised when they found out God's perspective on their lives the sooner we find out what God thinks the safer we're going to be the gift of God, we've heard this scripture many times quoted, the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. Think about that. God is not a respecter of persons. It is true for every man that the wages of sin is death, whether that man is born again or whether he's not. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that gift of eternal life is given to those who obey Jesus Christ the Lord. You remember in Hebrews 5, it says, Jesus has become the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. In John chapter 5, Jesus said this. He said, The hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear my voice and shall come forth. Now listen to what Jesus said. They that have done good will be resurrected unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil shall come forth unto the resurrection of damnation. But the important thing is that Jesus said that those who would receive eternal life are those who have done good. Not those who have joined this particular denomination, but those who have done good deeds. The basis here, whether you're talking about David or Solomon or Paul or Jesus or James or the rest of them that we'll see, the other prophets and apostles, it's always on the basis of how you live your life. From the beginning, carnally minded religious men working together with the spirit of Satan have labored passionately to persuade men to believe that the simple truth that Jesus spoke is not true. That the resurrection of life is not only for those who have done good, but others who have committed sins, others who are living in sin may also be admitted into the eternal rest of God. Satan does not want you to know that your eternal judgment not your judgments along the way, but your eternal judgment will be determined by Jesus on the basis of your behavior, 
the works that you perform. He doesn't want you to know that. And he's offering to you, and he offers to all men, hiding places for your sin. And these hiding places are given various appealing titles and often have demanding standards of admission. Some of these appealing titles are Shintoism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism. And of course, the most appealing of all the titles is Christianity, which John describes in Revelation as being the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. It doesn't make any difference what men call their particular hiding place. The point is that no one will be saved from the coming wrath of God unless he's obeyed the word of God. Satan knows that if we believe that eternal judgment will not be based upon holiness, then half of his battle for our hearts has been won. He's already gone a long way toward robbing us of our fear of God and our zeal to know what's right if he can just persuade us that our deeds are irrelevant. The knowledge of what your eternal judgment is based on will give you fear of God, and fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When you lose the fear of God, then you have begun a trip down the road of foolishness and blindness and eternal death. We need to know that Jesus told the truth. We need to know that they who do good and only they will be saved in the end. We need to know and believe Jesus. We need to know that they who do evil will not be saved in the end. We need to know that every one of us will give account of himself to God. We need to know, as Paul said, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us may receive the things done in his body. The deeds done. Notice that Paul points to that again. It's not a matter of saying that if you believe a certain doctrine, then you are assured of salvation regardless of how you live. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give account of the things done in our bodies and to receive the things done in our bodies according to whether they are good or bad. Now, don't those words put some fear of God in you? Let me read those words of Paul again. Paul said, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one of us may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. If you really take that in, you're going to stand, you, by yourself, stand before God and give account of the deeds done in your body. Doesn't it put some fear of God in you? Doesn't it begin to make you wise? Because if the fear of God is beginning to enter into your heart, you're beginning to become a wise person. Don't those words inspire in us a little fear of God? Awaken a surge of fear of, of, of uh, judgment to come? It did in Paul, because in the very next verse... He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul just didn't have fear of God. He knew the terror of God. We need the fear of God. Jesus had it and taught his disciples to have it. In Hebrews 5, it says Jesus' prayers were heard by his Father in that he feared. Jesus feared his Father. He feared God with a holiness and a, and a righteous fear. Psalm 19 says that the fear of God is clean and endures forever. Proverbs 8.13 says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16 verse 6 says by mercy and truth iniquity is purged and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. 
You will not depart from evil unless you have fear of God. This is why Satan labors through his Christian ministers to persuade men that they need not depart from evil, that they need not fear God, that we will be saved in the end even if we continue in sin as long as we believe in Jesus. My friend, believing in Jesus means believing what he says. And Jesus said, if you do evil, you'll, be, you'll wait a thousand years after the first resurrection for your resurrection. The fear of God enables us, as nothing else does, to depart from evil. With enough of the fear of God, you can do anything. You can stop anything. Listen, there are no bad habits in hell. They've all quit smoking. They've all quit uh, filthy language. There are no alcoholics in hell, no false religion, no immorality. There are no harlots because there is fear of God in that place. If you are not persuaded that your final judgment will be based upon what you are doing right now, you will not have enough fear of God to depart from evil. It's too much a part of your nature. We must have enough fear of God kindled within us to resist our own natures and come to Jesus and get a new one. We have been made partakers of the divine nature, Peter said, and we need a divine nature to overcome this flesh. If someone could return from hell right now, they would be willing to do anything to keep from going back to that place. Anything. They would be able to resist anything. If a saint were to come back here, if you could persuade them to, they would all the more praise the Lord, all the more pray, all the more labor to do good because they've found out it's worth everything. Now, my friend, if you have swallowed that Christian poison, that poisonous Christian doctrine that would have you think that at the final judgment, all that matters, or all that will matter on that day is whether you've been born again or not, your deeds are less likely to measure up to the standard which God requires. And listen to this part of the antidote to that poison that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, verse 10. For he that will love life, do you love life? And will see good days, do you want to see good days? Here it is. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Let him do good. You see, that's part of the antidote to the false teaching, the false idea that your deeds are not important, that they won't matter on the day of judgment, that your salvation will be given to you regardless of what they are. Now, Paul did write, as I read at the beginning of this program, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But what kind? What kind of works was Paul meaning when he said our salvation is not of works? There are many different kinds of works. I can think of a half a dozen uh, different kinds of works mentioned in the Bible right now. Works of the flesh, works of righteousness, uh, good works, works of the law. And in every place that Paul mentions works as being of no longer effect, no longer of any effect at all for our salvation, he mentions works of the law. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, this is Galatians 2.16, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
Romans 3.20, the same thing. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. So, what are works of the law? Animal sacrifices, holy buildings, uh, holy water, holy garments, uh, water cleansing rituals, holy days and Sabbath days, physical circumcision, ceremonial or symbolic ceremony contained in the law of Moses are what is called works of the law. Religious ceremonies are what count for nothing any longer. By the deeds of the law, by the works of the law, shall no flesh be justified. Paul is saying water cleansing rituals are no good anymore. Animal sacrifices, no good anymore. Physical circumcision, no good anymore. Sabbath days, holy days, no good anymore. Whether you have been through a symbolic ceremony or not has nothing to do with your salvation. Paul never intended, and his original readers of, his, of these letters never understood his words to mean that good works were unnecessary in order for us to be saved. Men have taken Paul's phrase from Ephesians, not of works, lest any man should boast, and they have interpreted that, Christian ministers have interpreted that, to mean any kind of works, even good works. It doesn't matter whether you've done good works or not, you'll be saved in the end, they say. That is heresy. It's foolishness. You will not be saved without good works. Jesus set us free from symbolic religion, symbolic religious works and ceremonies and rituals, but he didn't set us free from the obligation to work. The liberty from symbolic religious ceremony is not the same thing as being free from personal accountability. Freedom from works of the law does not mean that we are not required to do good works. Good works are not works of the law. Good works are different. It's a different kind of works. The works of the law are religious ceremony. Now, what all this means is, basically, is that you don't have to go through a religious ceremony to be right with God, but you sure do have to live right. Remember what Jesus said, Not all they that say unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but they who do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Don't be taken in by good-sounding theology. Do the will of God. It's the happiest and most fulfilling life on earth that you can live, and in the end you'll be granted eternal life and salvation from the coming wrath of God. That's the clear message of the gospel. Do the will of God and you will be saved, and doing the will of God is doing good works. I don't have time to explain it all or go into too much detail just on this uh, brief span of time that I have with you, but you can write for more information. We have a gospel track titled Works. And you can write us, and we'll be happy to send it to you completely free of charge with other material that will help your faith. So until next time, remember this part of the answer to the question of the ages. What must I do to be saved? And God be with you as you believe what he gives you as his answer. The man of unleavened, he's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. He's my peace when I'm troubled. 
my sight when I am blind When confronted by temptation Strengthen him I always find In a world of fear and heartache He's a joy I can't contain He's Jesus forever the The fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened. He's the fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds how sweetly they sing and welcome again to the pioneer broadcast i'm your host john clark welcoming you to this edition our ninth in a series of 12 lessons answering the question what must i do to be saved what must you do to inherit eternal life that's the most important question you can ask and wise people ask it of god is it required that we be faithful to Jesus in order to be saved in the end? Is it required that we endure to the end in obedience to God? And can believing the wrong things about God result in a believer losing his soul in the uh, final judgment, cast out of God's family forever? Jesus told every one of the pastors in Revelation 2 and 3 to hear what the Spirit of God was saying to God's people so that they might please God. But how important is it that we please God? How important is it that we know what to do? We'll be back in a few minutes with more of the Spirit's answers to the question, What must I do to be saved? Do we have to be faithful? He's Jesus forever the same. He's my peace when I'm troubled, my sight when I am blind, when confronted by temptation. Heaven, 
As we continue this uh, ninth in a series of 12 teachings on what must I do to be saved, I want to clarify something for those of you who may have missed the first part of this series. Let me explain what the question, what must I do to be saved, means. Because in order to understand the Spirit's answer to the question, we must understand the question itself. The question, what must I do to be saved, means what must I do to be granted eternal life with Christ and escape the coming wrath of God. It does not mean what must I do to be converted. You see, in, this 20th, in the 20th century, there arose a wrong idea about the meaning of the word saved. It began to be confused by Christians to mean converted. Uh, the jailer's question to Paul, in the Bible, what must I do to be saved was not what must I do to be converted. He didn't know anything about conversion. The question was, what must I do to escape God's wrath? There's not a single instance in your New Testament of any apostle claiming to have, quote, got saved, the way the popular phrase has been in the last half of the 20th century. There's no such thing in the Scriptures, and why not? Because there's no such thing in the kingdom of God. When the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was asking the question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus gave him the proper answer. Jesus said, you know the commandments of God. And then he began to list the commandments of God for that young man. Keeping the commandments of God leads to eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. It's simple. And conversely, disobeying God leads to damnation. Friend, it never gets any more complicated than that. Why do you never find an instance of Paul or Peter writing about the day I got saved, as you hear so many people say now? It's real big in Christianity, but it's zero in the Bible. Have you ever wondered why that difference? Concerning salvation, Paul didn't claim to have already had it. In Romans 13:11, he said, Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Every day, Paul drew closer to his salvation because every day brings us closer to the day of judgment. 
the day of the coming of the Lord, when he'll catch those who have been faithful to him away. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 9, about receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Salvation is not the beginning of our faith, it's the end. And in Acts 15, Peter said, we, he was already born again, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And Jesus repeatedly said, in one way or another, in one phrase or another, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. When the apostles spoke of salvation, it was always with an eye to the future. Now it's almost never uh, used that way. And there is a reason for the difference. Because what we are seeing now is the religion of Christianity is not what Paul, Peter, James, and John preached. It's not what Jesus died for. It's a perversion of it. They understood the final judgment was, was coming and that Jesus would have the final word, the final say-so about salvation. He would save some who had done the will of God and he would cast others into the lake of fire. Now, in Matthew 24 is one example of Jesus saying, He that shall endure unto the uh, end, the same shall be saved. But he added something with that because there's something that came before. Let me turn now in, in my Bible to Matthew 24 and you might want to read it with me. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 11. Many, shall, many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end. Endure unto the end in what? Well, he just finished telling us. The love of God. The love of many shall wax cold. But those whose love of God and of righteousness and of truth and of their fellow man does not wax cold shall be saved because that love keeps us doing the right, right thing. The disciples earlier on in this chapter asked Jesus, What shall be the sign of your coming? Uh, how, when will these things take place? They were sitting up on the Mount of Olives talking to, to the Savior. And Jesus said, number one, notice the very first thing Jesus answered to them in verse 4 of this same chapter in Matthew 24. Jesus said, watch out. Take heed that no man deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, when a man says, I am Christ, what he's saying is, I am anointed. That's what the word Christ means, the anointed one. I am anointed. I am ordained. I belong to Christ. I am speaking for him. And in verse 24, Matthew 24, 24, There shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect of God. Jesus was saying that false uh, ministers in his name, many shall come in my name, saying, I am a servant of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I am an apostle of the Lord. It's real simple. If a man is not saying what the Holy Ghost is saying to God's people, he is teaching false doctrine because the only true doctrine, my friend, is whatever it is that the Spirit of God is saying right now. Is the Holy Ghost saying right now, you don't have to be faithful to God. You'll be saved in the end even if you are unfaithful to your Lord. Is the Spirit of God saying that? Of course not. And neither is any man who is truly sent from God. Please understand that you will be held. I will be held accountable. We all will be held accountable for the deeds done in our bodies, whether good or bad. Evildoers will never see God, even if they belong to the family of God. The wages of sin is death for everyone. But those kinds of things, 
that you're already saved now, that you will be saved in the future, even if your life doesn't measure up to God's commandments. Those things are taught by those who say they are working for Jesus, anointed by God to deliver that lie to his children. Paul said this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and listen, whose end shall be according to their works. It's ironic, isn't it, that the ones who say works will not matter will be judged by their works. But friend, your conduct will demonstrate before God whether you believe in Jesus or not. Because a believing in Jesus is an obeying of Jesus. Paul warned uh, young Timothy in 1 Timothy, if you want to turn there, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. But look what he told Timothy to do in verse 16. Take heed unto thyself, Timothy, and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If Timothy had been a typical Christian minister of our day, he would have snapped Paul uh, a letter right back and said, I'll have you know I'm already saved and you can't make me doubt it. You see the difference in the spirit of claiming to already be saved? And the truth. False teachers tell you and claim for themselves that they're already saved and that you need not walk uprightly in order to obtain your salvation. Is that what the Spirit of God is saying? No, the Spirit of God is telling every one of us if we would be saved, we need to obey the voice of God. If anyone claims to be speaking for Christ and yet teaches that even if a child of God lives in sin, he'll be judged righteous in the end and saved from God's wrath, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever God sins speaks the words of God. You know that's in the scriptures. Whoever is of God hears God's words and whoever God sins speaks the words of God. Listen, listen to the words of God now in Ezekiel 18.4. God said this through a man that he did send, Ezekiel. And that's why Ezekiel spoke God's words. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. And listen, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God sent Ezekiel? God did send Ezekiel. Ezekiel spoke what God said. And God said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. What does your pastor teach? In 1821, it says, If a wicked man turns from his wickedness, God will forgive him and not mention his wickedness anymore, and in his righteousness he'll live. And those words are echoed by every man of God alive, that if a sinner repents, God will forgive him, cleanse him, and save him in the end, because now he's living a righteous life. On the other hand, God also continues here in verse 24 to say, If a righteous man turns from righteousness and turns back to filthiness, out of which I delivered him, then that man shall die and his righteousness will be forgotten. And every man of God living says the same thing. If you turn from righteousness, you will die. He that is of God speaks God's words. 
If a wicked man turns from wickedness and does good, God will forgive him and he'll live if he continues doing good. And if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, he shall die if he continues doing evil. That's what God says. What do you say? Tell me what you say and I'll know whether you're of God or not. Let's see now. Let's turn to Second Peter, the second chapter in verse 19, and see whether Peter was of God or not. Let's see if Peter taught things consistent with what Ezekiel taught, and God did send Ezekiel. I think we've agreed on that. In Second Peter, the second chapter, beginning in verse 19. While they, he's talking about uh, ministers, uh, false apostles, while they promise their listeners liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. The same thing Jesus said. He who commits sin is a servant of sin. Peter said in verse 20, he went on here in his second uh, epistle, in the second chapter, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in the pollutions of the world and overcome with them, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment given unto them. Yep, Peter was from God. He said what God said through Ezekiel. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness, his righteousness will be forgotten and he'll, be, he'll die because of his wickedness. Well, let's see if Paul was from God. Let's see if Paul spoke the words of God. In Romans chapter 11, when he's warning the Gentile believers of pride, in verse 21, he said, If God spared not the Jews who disobeyed the natural branches of the tree, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fail, severity. But toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Same thing he told Timothy, continue. Endure to the end, Jesus said. Seek life and seek peace and pursue it. Do good, Peter said. Yep, Paul's from God because he said, Otherwise thou, thou, believer, shall be cut off. And that's what you'll find in John's writings. That's what you'll find in Jeremiah. That's what you'll find in Moses. That's what you'll find in every man that was sent by God. They're warning people that they must obey God. That not to fall victim to those that, who teach that you will be saved because of who you are. Instead of how you live. A man sent from God does not contradict God. He doesn't confuse saints with doctrines contrary to what the Spirit is saying. He does not teach people to claim to be already saved. He tells them to get to work for that which they claim to possess. Follow peace with all men, Hebrews says, and holiness without which no man shall see God. And if God says so, then God's ministers are saying so. And if any man is, is not in his doctrine saying so, he's not of God. False teachers proclaim God's peace toward those who, who despise God. Just believe, and even if you continue in sin, God, Jesus understands. Let me tell you what Jesus understands. Jesus understands he suffered and died on the cross to provide us with power to walk uprightly without sin. He understands that wolves in, in sheep's clothing will come teaching damnable heresies in his name and that if you follow them and continue in sin with them, you'll be damned with them. The Bible records all this. It's nothing new. Jeremiah 23 said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, 
hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They empty you out of good things. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They still say unto them that despise me, The Lord has said ye shall have peace. Their doctrine in this same chapter continues to say that they say unto every one that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, No evil shall come upon you. Is that a picture of Christianity or not? It doesn't matter what denomination, what group. The Methodist minister is telling those who believe the Methodist way, No evil shall come upon you. Peace, peace. The Baptist preacher is saying to the Baptist congregation who worship that way and believe that way and teach that way, Peace, peace. No evil shall come upon you. The Pope is telling millions and millions of people across the world, Peace, peace to you from God. No evil shall come upon you. And they're all lying. Every one of them. Evil shall most certainly come upon you. And that evil shall not come from Satan, my friend. It will come from God. And you will not escape. In Jeremiah 23, verse 21, God goes on to say, I have not sent these prophets. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Listen to what God said. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused them to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. He's the fragrance of my friend, we have billions of people around this world who are being promised eternal life when they don't even have the Spirit of God. Are you among them? Have you joined yourself to a sect that promises eternal bliss to those who have no communion with God at all? Let me encourage you to flee for your life from such places as that and get on your knees and on your face before God and find out what's real and learn to walk in the spirit that Jesus suffered and died for you to have. This is John Clark saying God bless you till next time and continue with us as we pursue the knowledge of the truth concerning the answer to our most important question what must I do to be saved cleanses every sinful stain he's Jesus forever the same he's the fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened, he's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing, he's the light of the morning, creation adorning, he's Jesus forever. My peace when I'm troubled, my sigh.